0: Okay, like Pastor Steve read, we are in 1 Corinthians 6. And the title of the message is The Justified Flea Immorality. The Justified flea Immorality. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you for allowing us the privilege of gathering here this morning with each other. And like Pastor Steve said, we, we love you and we love the unity and community that you've given us with each other. And we love most of all the fellowship that you've given us with you. And I ask now, Lord, that you would open hearts and ears to hear what your spirit has to say through your word and it's in christ's name we pray amen okay we left off um last week at verse 7 first corinthians 6 which says actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another why not rather be wronged why not rather be defrauded Now, picking up in verse 8, we read, this is Paul, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, I know there are some people that don't like to hear Pastor Steve read it and then me read it. Within five minutes, again, um, but just to get the flow and the context, I'm going to read this again. Paul says, "Do not be deceived; neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, for drunk, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit." The kingdom of god that's some list isn't it verse 11 such were some of you some of you but you were washed but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and in the spirit of our god if we're going to continue to or i should say continue interpreting this chapter correctly, then we need to stop here and expand just a little bit more on the context of the chapter. And you may be thinking, and I don't blame you at this point, you know, Mike, didn't we do this last week? Yes, we did, okay? But we need to go just a tad deeper this week, okay? Okay. And we we have to do so because the next group of verses are impossible to interpret correctly without securely grasping the context here. As such, please remember that the Apostle Paul is dealing with a matter between two Christians who are going before public courts for some sort of settlement that we are not privy to. And Paul speaks to them in such a way that the entire community is addressed. And if you think about it, this is what we are doing here this morning. Even though Paul is specifically dealing with these two Christians in this situation, Paul is also addressing us. As a matter of fact, the entire passage is written in the second person plural, thus broadening the perspective to include them all and us all, if that makes any sense. Paul is telling the man who initiated the proceedings to conform to the non-retaliation ethic of the Christian faith. Can't stress that enough. Oh, how we love to retaliate, don't we? But Christ teaches us non-retaliation. Then in verses 8 through 10, Paul shames the defendant who brought the lawsuit in the first place. Then he proceeds to warn him and the church that those who do such things are in danger of forfeiting their inheritance. But, Like a loving spiritual father, in verse 11, Paul makes an attempt to affirm their salvation. He says, look, man, you could do better. It's basically what he's saying. But but before Paul says this, he tries to blatantly make them see that there are very specific things that true, authentic Christians simply should not be doing or practicing or being in the habit of after telling them in verse 7 that it would have been better to be defrauded than go to court Paul writes what are now verses 8 through 10 and I'm not going to read I'm not going to read those verses again you you can refer I hope you will refer to them in your bibles as I talk and in verses 8 through 10, if you look, Paul's basically saying, you all had better wake up and get a reality check. Real Christians don't do these things. They don't act the way you are acting, at least not in a habitual form. He is saying, stop deceiving yourselves and stop allowing yourselves to be deceived, or again, you're going to be in danger of not inheriting the kingdom. Now, by persisting in the same behavior as those who are already destined for judgment, Paul says you are placing yourselves in very real danger of coming under that same judgment then again as i said a moment ago and it, it bears repeating we're going to repeat it several times in verse 11 paul invites the corinthians to change their behavior by reminding them that they do indeed belong to god through the gracious work of christ at least some of them do paul believes this he assumes they belong to Christ. He talks to them like they belong to Christ. He hasn't given up on them. Just like there was a gracious hope for the Corinthians, despite their sin, there is a gracious hope for us, despite our sin. More on that later. Now, before we begin actually interpreting verse 11, which I want to spend a considerable amount of time on since I believe it is the most important verse in the text thus far because it directly deals with that gracious hope that we have in Christ. But before we go there, I want to say a few things about the sins, the vice list that Paul Writes in verses nine and ten. I'm going to go through each one um, as I read. No, I take that back. I'm not going to go through each one. I'm I'm going to just concentrate on the sexual sins for two reasons. Okay, number one, in this particular text, in regard to these particular words about these sexual sins, there is a lot that is lost in the translation from Greek to English here, okay, which is very important to the book as a whole, and especially to verses 12 through 20, which is the rest of the chapter. The second reason why I'd like to spend a little time on this subject matter is because of the subject's relation to current to the current affairs of our very country that we live in more specifically the utter insanity and that's an appropriate word perhaps not harsh enough the utter insanity of how these sins have become accepted, and not only accepted, but promoted as the norm in our society, and why I believe, they, they, I believe things are going to get much, much worse in regard to these particular sins in our country. So let's look at verses 9 and 10 again for a minute. Now I'm going to read the list. Okay? Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the word adulterer here simply means married people having sexual relations of any kind outside of their marriage, okay? So there's really no need for further comment on that. We'll just leave that as it is. Black and white, cut and dry. The following two words after adulterer, however require much more attention. The words effeminate and homosexual have been used by those translating the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, uh, which is the translation I'm using for the entire series of 1 Corinthians, and it's the translation Pastor Steve uses on Wednesday nights, and he just read from this morning. However... I like the NIV in this instance, the New International Version. I think it comes closer, again, in this instance, to the linguistic meaning and, and this is the most important part, this is what we're going to concentrate on, the contextual slash cultural meaning here. The NIV pay particular attention to this. The NIV uses the words, and I'm quoting, male prostitutes, end quote, in place of the word effeminate. And the NIV uses the word homosexual, just like the NASB, but it adds the word offenders here. So the NIV reads, quote, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. You with me? Okay. The Greek is admittedly ambiguous in the opinion of most Bible scholars. But I am of the humble opinion that when the original language is ambiguous, one must more heavily consider the cultural norms at the time in regard to the subject at hand or in regard to when it was written and even where, i.e. the geography. And so let's do that. Let's look at the cultural norms, okay, and consider them in light of some of the ambiguity of the Greek words translated into English. Now, in this case, the, the Corinthian greco roman culture, we'll call it, had within it very blatant and specific practices that fit these words and their definitions. Again, particularly so the way the NIV translates them. For example, it was common, 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 common for men. To have relationships outside of marriage both with both other women and other men in fact homosexuality and even more so pedophilia was very very common and it was accepted by society this society with a blind eye Young male prostitutes, particularly teens, um, which one theologian calls, and I quote, effeminate callboys. These young male prostitutes would sell themselves to older men. And again, culturally acceptable and a complete indifference to entertaining any moral aspects of such things at this time and in this part of the world. In addition, slave traders, slavery was very common at that time. Slave traders would deal in selling men. They were actually called, one scholar says, dealers in men, quote unquote. And they would sell young teen boys and men into sexual slavery. So you see, the NIV... Having translated this um, using the phrases, quote, male prostitutes, end quote, and homosexual offenders, end quote, comes much closer to the cultural norm for that time in history and in that part of the world. It is beyond sad that Paul had to speak to this sinful behavior in his vice list here in our context But these things were so prevalent and so widely accepted that it had to be addressed so that the church at Corinth understood clearly that there couldn't be any give or take regarding these sins. They were black and white, as I said, cut and dry situations whereby the body of Christ would be required to take a moral and biblical stance. The body of Christ would be required to take a moral and biblical stance. Like Paul and the Corinthian church, the body of Christ needs to take a moral and biblical stance today, right here in the old U.S. of A., which is why I am addressing it here this morning. One of the reasons why. This applies directly to us in this room here and now. These things have become increasingly acceptable in our culture here in the United States, and sadly, even in the American church culture. I wasn't going to say this, For the sake of time, but I'll I'll say it. I read an article in my research for this. I read an article in a Baptist magazine. We are Reformed Baptists here at Abiding Race Church. Read it in a Baptist magazine written by a woman who was pro homosexual. And she was making the point in the article that we need to be more worried about pastors who are pedophiles than we do about homosexuals in the church. Now, some of you just look me. you're going like this. Yeah, that's the reaction that you should have. Is that not ridiculous? Now you know why I'm using the word insanity, okay? People are being sex trafficked in our country as I speak, and are being forced to do unspeakable evil. I know a young man, he's actually not young, he's in his mid-30s, former student of mine, who, he works at a very large, uh, works for a very large credit card company. You would all know the name of the company if I mentioned it. And most of you probably have one of their credit cards in your wallet as, as we speak, I do. This young man, who is a mathematical genius, literally, and a stellar Christian, just wrote this past year a complex algorithm for this credit card company. And in so doing, his algorithm allowed the credit card company to identify, this was the whole point in writing it, to identify and catch a huge sex trafficking ring who was using this company's credit card for various purchases and transfers. This enabled them to bring in the authorities and catch the criminals. That one algorithm that he wrote saved 77 people who were being held against their will and sex trafficked. He won awards for it and everything. This type of sinful behavior among our most heinous criminals is quickly becoming so normal for us to hear about in our society that we are fast becoming just like Greco-Roman, the Greco-Roman world as a society. What do I mean by that? We're becoming desensitized. We are becoming desensitized to these things as a culture. And like the Corinthians, when we become desensitized to sin in our culture, we tend to turn a blind eye toward it, don't we? We don't like it. We believe it's wrong, but we don't do anything about it. We know it's there, but we figure either someone else will deal with it or we'll throw up our hands and say things like, I I don't have time, uh to concern myself with this. Or we say, there's no use in addressing it because it'll all fall in deaf ears anyway. The lines, the lines are our friends. And the lines have become easily blurred. And as a result, we give way to things in our society that we would have never given way to 20 years ago. I know that because I lived 20 years ago, as most of you in here. Case in point, everything I'm about to tell you is true. Some of you aren't going to believe it. When we begin to allow men dressing as women in drag to read stories to our children as young as five years of age, in our schools, libraries, and bookstores, we have officially become insane as a culture. And yes, there isn't, there is an actual official organization. How many of you have heard? Show hands of the Drag Queen Story Hour. Excellent. I'm glad. Um, the Drag Queen Story Hour is doing just this all over the country. This is from their website. Quote, It's just what it sounds like, exclamation point. Storytellers using the art of drag to read books to kids in library schools, and bookstores. DSH, okay, that's what they call themselves, acronym, captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity of childhood of I should say of childhood and gives kids glamorous positive and unabashedly queer role models in spaces like this schools libraries kids are able to see people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where everyone can be their authentic selves, close quote. Insanity. And if you show up to one of their events and you verbally protest, you can be arrested for hate speech, which is something that they're calling for now. And you can read about it in the news. No, I didn't say this was in Canada. I said it's in the United States of America. And if you don't believe me, Google it, and you'll get a double whammy. This is what blew me away, okay? You'll not only get to see the videos of the drag queen story, our reading books to our grade school children, but you will also get a front row seat to just how ridiculous Ridiculously, Google has censored the opponents of these people. More specifically, when you type it in, drag queen story hour, the first 20 or so hits, I kid you not, are all stories in favor of the group. And then another 20 hits, follow that 20, and they are stories about how the evangelical Christians, those dastardly, wicked evangelical Christians and conservative right-wing Republicans are committing hate speech and bigotry against this group. And also, they say, that the Christians and parents who oppose them are the ones who are actually scaring our children, not the drag queens. Again, don't take my word for it. Look it up. The fact that people in our society are now promoting these things as good and beneficial and even educational for our kids is the beginning of a massive desensitization movement of an entire generation of children in order to groom them to become adults who will be in total favor of such perversion. And as I said, This will blur the lines and remove the so-called stigma of even more blatant perversions, which will continue to feed into developing a culture like that of greco roman Corinth, where just about anything sexual was free game, even pedophilia. As I pointed out in a previous sermon, by the way, folks, I say that all the time and the reason why I say that is because I don't want you to think I have dementia because I'll repeat things that I preached two sermons ago or five sermons ago or a year ago and you could probably sit there and you could think, this guy just said that. So that's why I qualify it, by the way. So as I pointed out in previous sermon, we are now asked, asked to call pedophiles, quote, minor attracted people, end quote, who were born with an unstoppable propensity to be attracted to young children. They say it's genetic, just like they say homosexuality is genetic. They can't help it. They were born this way. That's the new push in our society that is fast becoming acceptable. As a matter of fact, the latest medical and psychiatric professional publications are now using the term minor attracted as a replacement for the term pedophile, also mentioned in a previous sermon. Most of you here this morning are old enough to remember when homosexuality was considered to be sinful by our society. Now, it has become not only accepted, but celebrated. And if you don't agree with it, you are a bigot, hater, and homophobe. Mark? My words, there is coming a time in America when you will be labeled the same for not accepting, approving, and even celebrating minor attracted lifestyles and the people who practice them. It's only a matter of time. People have already blatantly begun to move our culture in this direction. Short of another revival or another Christian Great Awakening like that of the 1730s through the 1770s, we will continue to go down this road. And for those of you who think I'm stating the obvious, you may be surprised at how many Christians that I speak to who are entirely unaware that this is going on around us. I don't know if they live under rocks, or just don't see or hear the news, I I don't know. What I do know is that enough of them don't know that I need to say something about it so that they do know, so that you know, okay? The devil is very hard at work for the minds of your children and grandchildren. Okay. That's who I am highlighting this for today, for those Christians and those decently moral people who don't realize how much how much of a gain this push is making and who don't realize that it scars kids for life. A five, six, or seven-year-old child cannot in any way, shape, or form process drag queen story hour. That's why I used the word, as I said, insane. If you think this type of thing is healthy for children, you're crazy. Our free speech and religious freedom in this country is going to be taken right from under our nose because we didn't know and didn't care enough to act. The Apostle Paul also cared. Why? Paul tells us why. Because those who practice such things will spend eternity separated from Almighty God. That's why Paul cared. That's the other reason why we should care. All of the theological sources I have read concerning these verses have one common denominator. They agree that Paul is talking about sin here that is being practiced, sin that is characteristically habitual. This is why Paul wrote verse 11. Listen to verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. He's speaking in the past tense. Paul invites the Corinthians to change their behavior by reminding them that some of them do indeed belong to God through the gracious work of Jesus Christ. Just like there was a gracious hope for the Corinthians despite their sin, there's a gracious hope for us despite our sin. And if you are practicing or doing or being habitual with a certain sin in your life, now is the time to repent before the Lord. To truly turn away from your sin and recommit your life to Christ. If you are truly one of God's elect, then This is not only what you will want to do, but it is what you actually will do. This is what people who are in Christ do. They repent. They turn away from their sin. They don't try to justify their sin. In fact, it is because, listen carefully, it is because they are justified that they want to repent in the first place. Play on words. Now, what do I mean when I say that they are justified? If you are about to become, one of the most challenging things as a pastor is making a sermon appealing to both those who are new in Christ and those who are seasoned in Christ, those that have been saved for decades. And so some of you are going to be thinking, what in the world, Mike? We know what justified means. But there are other people here that don't know what it means. And so because Paul uses the actual word and he speaks of that doctrine in this chapter, it needs to be preached. So what do I mean when I say that they are justified? If you are about to become a Christian or you are um, a new believer then you must understand that the word justified is Paul's word. It's God's word, and it's Paul's word, and it's not my word or the word of some translator that just threw it in there. He uses it in our text, as I said. Now, look at verse 11. Paul lists the sins in verses 9 and 10, which we just read, okay? Then he says in verse 11, yes, we need to read it one more time. I'm sorry. We've got to get the flow going again. Um, I'm getting, getting back on the groove here of this subject. Verse 11, such were some of you, past tense, as I said, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, Paul is actually explaining this backwards. Um, most, if not all of all, I didn't, I didn't count, but I'm pretty sure all of the other times that he speaks of justification and sanctification in the same chapter, he puts justification first and sanctification second. But for some unknown reason here, he puts sanctification before justification. Now, this is not Romper Room or Mr. Rogers. Um, but bear with me, okay, as I try to explain it. We're going to look at justification first, because it's supposed to come first, okay? Simply because, listen carefully, it is the first aspect of our salvation. Justification is the first aspect of our salvation. When we talk about the three biggies, which are justification, sanctification, and glorification, okay? We're only going to get through justification this morning, and we'll get through sanctification next week okay so to finish up the exegesis on verse 11 okay the doctrine of justification refers this is the short and succinct definition okay the doctrine of justification refers to the act of god declaring a sinner righteous based on their faith in jesus christ I'm going to read that again. The doctrine of justification refers to the act of God declaring a sinner to be righteous based on their faith in Jesus Christ. According to the doctrine of justification, we are all guilty of sin and deserving of punishment. But through faith in Christ We are declared righteous by God and given the free gift of eternal life. So justification is, in essence, a forensic term, which means that it is a legal declaration of righteousness upon us by Almighty God. Paul makes that, which I just stated, abundantly clear, In numerous places in his writings, but let's together go to Romans chapter 3, please. Not 5, which Pastor Steve read, but let's go first to 3, verses 21 through 28. In Romans 3, beginning in verse 21... Paul says, but now apart from the law of righteousness of God, of the, the righteousness of God. <sighs> Let me start that over. But now apart from the law, I must have typed that wrong. From the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith In Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, verse 27. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what? By, by what kind of law, Paul says? Of works? No, but by a law of faith, he says. For we maintain, that is, Christians maintain, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. One more, folks. Galatians 2.16. You don't have to turn there. Actually, two more. Galatians 2.16. A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And finally, these are just proof texts. I'm going to talk about them in a minute. Titus chapter 3, 5 through 7. Paul says, he saved us not because of anything righteous that we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Whew. So, you see, these passages. Make it clear that justification is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace that is received by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works. Justification, again, is the declaration of righteousness, your righteousness, that's been imputed to you by Christ, okay? Christ's righteousness imputed to you because of the atoning sacrifice of your Christ and the forgiveness of sins, that that sacrifice, that that spilled blood provides you. That is what Paul is trying to get the church at Corinth to grasp. Now remember, he is speaking to them in verse 11 in the past tense as i said he's assuming they are justified meaning he is assuming that they are saved in Christ Jesus and as such they should start acting like they are in Christ by first repenting of their sins and second by no longer turning a blind eye to those in the congregation who are blatantly sinning like the guy who's sleeping with his stepmother. Paul is telling them that they have everything they need in Christ to get their act together and start living right again. The message is the same for us this morning, folks. If you have habitual sin in your life, or if you are avoiding someone because you know you need to speak to them about their sin, but you don't want any of the, the hassle that might come along with that, if either of those are you, then now is the time to repent and change course. We're about to celebrate the Eucharist. That's a perfect time for us to get right with God. Please understand that Christ's sacrifice for you, it's ongoing, i.e., you are positionally justified, but you are ongoingly, if that's a word even, ongoingly being sanctified, being made holy. We're going to look at that next week, as I said. But God, it drives me crazy when people say God is able, <laughs> as if we're doubting uh, God's ability. Um, God is more than able. God is God, okay? He's the great I am. And it is he who keeps you in Christ Jesus. Of course, there's a cooperation there, and we've talked about that before. Um, But please understand that there's nothing that you've done that Christ isn't going to forgive you of. God the Father, I should say, isn't going to forgive you of through Christ by way of his Holy Spirit. So no matter how uh, shameful you feel or how upset you are about failing, give it to the Lord. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Plead the blood of Christ and simply turn and go in the right direction. That's what repentance means. It means to turn away from your sin. Let's pray.